Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. This week on the show we review Jurassic World Dominion and also the new Adam Sandler movie on Netflix, Hustle. We talk to the director of the Polish entry for this year's Oscar about his poignant new movie, Leave No Traces. Plus journalist and novelist Adele Coffey chats about her favourite movie. And your chance to win tickets to the screening of Lightyear. Yes, the Buzz Lightyear origin story. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on News Talk. It's coming to you later on the radio this week at the time of 8pm. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I bored you a number of weeks ago, might even be months ago, about my teeth, telling you I was having all this work done. For the last number of years, I've had a denture and uh, I finally got it replaced at a lot of cost, but I, I have a fake tooth now stuck into my mouth as of last Tuesday morning. And uh, I, I know you're saying, is this guy talking to us about his teeth again? But I'm sorry, it's the biggest thing that happened to me all week. Forget about seeing Jurassic Park. But the strange thing is, I keep going to look for my denture. I keep waking up going, oh, I don't have my tooth in. It's a strange thing, you know, to have this thing that's been in your mouth bear with me, for all these years, suddenly to be gone. You you grow used to this kind of robotic piece of plastic that was in your mouth. I, I find I'm partially missing my denture. I, I'm, I'm tonguing the roof of my mouth, wondering where it is. So anyway, enough of that. So listen, the big movie release of the week is unquestionably this. How are you kids? Mm. Amazing. Grown. It's shocking. They're both in college. Can you believe that? And Mark? It's over. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I'm back to me and my work. You know, it's... That's great. It's good. It is. I'm alone at last. Exciting times. Yeah, I'm living the Alan Grant life. It's just... Can be lonely. So free. Allie, you didn't come out all this way just to catch up now, did you? Yeah, now that's a clip from Jurassic World Dominion. This is the sixth movie in the Jurassic Park world. There was three original movies. The first one was particularly good that Steven Spielberg directed. This is following on from Jurassic Park, Fallen Kingdom, where at the end of it, dinosaurs and humans are living together. Let's see how that works out. And in this one, you have Chris Pratt and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. They're former Jurassic Park employees and their daughter goes missing, who's a clone of one of the original scientists or, or, or she's from the original scientist. And they have to find her. In tandem with that, there is the return of the Sam Neill character and the Laura Dern scientist character, and they're tracking down some very dodgy locusts. And everyone ends up on this strange, bad place island, which is being run by a malicious scientist of sorts. Jeff Goldblum is there as well. And there are a lot of dinosaurs for not necessarily discernible reasons. If this sounds very complicated and messy, it is. I was disappointed by this and it gives me no joy to badmouth blockbusters because, you know, 
I'm all in favour of a good summer blockbuster. And I was talking on the hard shoulder earlier in the week about Jurassic Park or Jurassic World Dominion. It's, 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 they've changed the names a bit. And, you know, someone texted in saying it's called the suspension of disbelief. And, and I'm all for that. I mean, when we reviewed Top Gun a few weeks ago, Top Gun Maverick, you know, we were talking about that's what you do with a blockbuster. You suspend disbelief for the most part. But there has to be a level of, believability to a certain extent, a a rationale, even within this imagined world. And there just isn't that in this. It's, It's too full of, you know, nonsense, really. And they're clearly, clearly just trying to make another movie and haven't really thought about the script. And what annoyed me was the dinosaurs, which is a strange thing to say about a dinosaur movie. But they're just randomly in there. And, and there's too many Easter eggs in this movie. They're trying to ape the first one constantly. And in a way, Jeff Goldblum's character, Laura Dern's character, and Sam Neill, we remember them so fondly from previous movies, but they're really only there because of that. that because, that's because we remember them. And, and if you take Obi-Wan Kenobi at the moment, you might wonder where I'm going with this, but it's great. And people are raving about it because they've done the Easter egg thing right. They've put in all these tropes and things original Star Wars fans remember, but they've remembered to write a script around those Easter eggs and actually make a compelling story. And they haven't done that in Jurassic World Dominion. It's a really hard movie even to say. But uh, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's it's going to go gangbusters. You put Jurassic in the title and people are going to sell it out. Interestingly enough, though, my nine-year-old Will was with me and he found it a bit messy as well. I mean, he liked it. Glad to be in a big cinema with free popcorn and all that. And he loves the experience of it. And he got to take his photo with a big picture of a dinosaur afterwards, which was cool. Thanks to the guys at Universal for that. But uh I could tell he wasn't buying it all either. So, you know, if you're, you know, he's a pretty smart guy, let's face it, the apple and the tree and all that. But uh, if nine-year-olds are questioning it, you may be in some trouble. So it's kind of a thumbs down for me for Jurassic World Dominion. Sorry about that, folks. Now, talking of blockbusters, another, I guess it's a blockbuster, is opening next Friday, Lightyear. And this is the origin story of Buzz Lightyear. Yes, indeed, that famed character from the Toy Story movies. Lightyear follows the legendary Space Ranger after he's marooned on a hostile planet 4.2 million light years from Earth alongside his commander and their crew. As, as Buzz tries to find a way back home through space and time, he's joined by a group of ambitious recruits and his charming robot companion, cat socks. Complicating matters and threatening the mission is the arrival of Zerg, an imposing presence with an army of ruthless robots. Now, we have tickets for Tuesday night in the Lighthouse Cinema. That's the 14th of June, so that's this Tuesday. We five pairs of tickets. Doors open at 6.30. The film begins at 7.00, and there'll be a reception after the show. Now, please do not enter this competition if you cannot go to the Lighthouse for sometime after 6.30 on Tuesday. That's this Tuesday coming the 14th of June. However, if you can, and if you'd like to, simply text the word Lightyear followed by your name to 53106 or email the word Lightyear to screentime at newstalk.com and the wonderful Anne-Marie Kane will pick a winner and you could be going along to the screening of Lightyear.
Now, another new release this week, something very different than Dinosaurs, is the new Adam Sandler movie, which lands on Netflix this week, uh, the 11th of June, I think it was, or the 10th of June. No, I make a mistake. It was the 8th of June. I'm terrible with dates. And it's Adam Sandler continuing his series of movies with Netflix. And it's all about a vaguely washed up talent scout on a basketball team in America. So for a slight change of pace, I thought I'd get someone who actually knows a bit about sport, as opposed to me, and certainly Mark Ryle. So I'm delighted to be joined by Will O'Callaghan of Off The Ball. Will, how are you? I'm good, John. I must admit, I was a little bit worried when you sent this film my my way midweek when it came out on Netflix because I saw it was being made by Happy Madison Productions, which meant that it was going to be Adam Sandler taking money from Netflix to make a movie with primarily a cast which involves NBA players as actors. And I thought possibly this has a bad cash grab comedy all over it. And then I realized it's one of those rare things, an Adam Sandler dramatic turn, which actually goes quite well. And he doesn't make enough of these. It's 20 years since Punch Drunk Love. We had Uncut Gems just before the pandemic. And here he is for what I would say, one of the top two or three performances of his career. Good man. We'll get to that in a second. Did you like Uncut Gems, by the way? I did. I thought it was really, really good. Excellent. Okay, and we can continue this interview then. Uh, but you, <laughs> you, you make a good point because there is a sense when he's doing comedy for a lot of people, it doesn't work. We'll get to that in a second. Just give listeners, I've seen this as well, but a, a, a quick synopsis of what's going on in this. Okay, well, Adam Sandler is your everyman character. He is playing Stanley Sugarman. As you mentioned in the intro, he has fallen down in his luck within his job. He's meant to be a coach with the Philadelphia 76ers, a real-life NBA team. But he's found himself in the unenviable job of becoming their talent scout, looking for talents all over the world who've not been uncovered yet. He is a frustrated coach, though. He would much prefer to be working in the coaching team with the 76ers, but he's not. He's out in the road, away from his family, and he's having to look for players who nobody else really wants to draft as they try and find, to use a phrase, an uncut gem somewhere. Mm. And there's, look, there's a lot of comedy, but not in the traditional Adam Sandler comedic way in the first five, six minutes of the movie, even before we get the titles. Uh, you see that he's gone to Greece to try and find a Serbian player who's pretending to be 22, but it's very clear <laughs> he's perhaps in his late 40s and is hoping to go to the NBA Combine, which kind of sets the tone, really. And that is the first NBA player that we meet. That is Boban Marjanovic, who plays for Dallas. And he is, I think, about 36 or 37 in real life, but he's pretending uh, that he's under the age of 22 so he can go to the NBA Combine. And really, that is the heart of the story, that the redemption and the hustle is going to be all about trying to find players who can come through the combine. Those who are yeah. either coming out of college or who've been picked up internationally to go and try and get in the NBA. And he reaches or finds in Spain what might be the greatest player he's ever come across. Might be. Yeah, entirely unexpected. So Bo Cruz, or the Cruz missile, as he tries to land a nickname on him throughout mm. the movie, uh, played again by a real-life NBA player in Juancho Hernan Gomez, who has played previously for the Boston Celtics, has traded around a bit. He was at the Denver Nuggets. but he's So he's in his- a real-life NBA player as well? Real-life NBA player. Okay, which the, again, the minute I saw this, I thought, are these NBA players going to be able to play dramatically? And I actually, I actually thought Juancho was really, really good. Yeah. It's a kind of an understated performance, but he is... Excellent at first portraying 
um, a player in Spain who is who is hustling effectively. He's a construction worker, but he's clearly remarkably good at basketball. We're going to find out as the movie goes on why he didn't pursue a career in athletics and why he went down a different direction and how some of the issues from his past are going to catch up with him. And similarly, that is mirrored with Adam Sandler's character in Stanley Sugarman. Because we always have this feeling, John, why did Stanley Sugarman, if he's friends with all these NBA stars and ex-NBA mm. players, why is he working in the back office in Philadelphia as opposed to having an MBA career himself. Um, as the movie goes on, we'll find out exactly why. That really takes us absolutely where we need to go without any spoilers. So, you've kind of intimated this. You were pleasantly surprised. I was, because again, as we started to get into the movie slightly, there are some, you know, reasonably big movie stars who were in here that I didn't expect as well, like Queen Latifah is playing Stanley's mm. wife and plays it remarkably well. Uh, I thought there was a real wonderful warmth between that relationship and the relationship between Adam Sandler and his daughter, because... One of the key themes, and this reminded me an awful lot of another sports movie that was based in Pennsylvania from about 10 years ago now, which was Warrior. And I think oh, yeah. Rocky is explicitly referenced yes. almost as it's like a love letter to yeah. Rocky in many ways. And like you're going to have Bo Cruz uh, training and there's about 56 montages in the middle of the film. But again, similarly, like Warrior, uh, social media is used as a way uh, to create opportunity and a way to actually get his story out to the mm. wider world. And it's part of how he gets picked up. And again, a bit like Warrior, I actually think a lot of the central themes in this are away from sport. It's about uh, relationships between fathers and their children, and in many ways, absent fathers. Mm. And I think that goes across the movie between Bo Cruz's character, him being a father himself, his own father being absent uh, throughout his life. Similarly, Stanley, because he's been on the road, and we get that montage at the start where he's in Greece, he's in Spain, he's in Italy, he's in Germany looking at a player that the 76ers really want to sign, and he's totally against. He's on the road all the time, and he's not getting a chance to have an active role in his daughter's life. And then he's trying to get to a stage where he's got a more settled job. He wants to become a coach at the 76ers so he can be at home. That is his ultimate goal. That is his hustle so that he can spend more time with his family. And I think that father-sibling relationship is actually key to Warrior and pretty key to this. I think... um, if you're looking at it, there's a lot of Rocky, but I think there's a lot of Warrior throughout the movie too. Yeah, good point. Now listen, you know, all or a lot of sports movies, and I, I love them, you know, and Rocky is, you know, one of the greatest films ever made. But they're, you know, as Anthony Hopkins said, you know, Rocky's hokey, but who cares? Life is hokey. Like sports movies mm. can occasionally be corny and a bit hokey. This is a bit corny at times, but it, I think it falls on the right side of getting away with it. I think so too. I mean, I think your expectation is that that hokiness is going to conclude with Adam Sandler attempting to do everything possible uh, to get the player that he's found. And in this case, you know, in Bo Cruz, 76ers are a little bit reluctant about bringing him in. So therefore, he has to go on an almost individual mission to make sure that Bo is able to get into the NBA. And in the second act, he is met with a series of issues which are blocking his way to get there, despite the fact that Stanley is doing everything possible. Him and Bo are getting up at four o'clock in the morning initially. Then they're getting up at half past three. I think it's three o'clock by the time that they're getting ready to go to the combine. (laughs) And you just feel that everything is in the way. And Again, this is where more NBA players come in. I, this is where they made a really good decision, John, because there's two ways to go about this. They could have got some really good actors to try and do basketball scenes, or they got a, could have got some really good basketball players to do some acting scenes, and they went for the latter. And yeah. we get to see players like, um, well, there's a basically there's a protagonist here who is called Kerwood Wiltz is his name within the movie, but he's played by Anthony Edwards, who's again a really famous NBA player. He was the number one overall pick in 2020, so he's able to ball. Yeah. Um, the great thing is you're able to put him up against Juancho Hernan Gomez, 
and the basketball scenes feel remarkably real. And I think if you had put two actors in, that probably wouldn't have been the case. So I think it works out really well. And maybe LeBron James's influence in this as a producer pays off somewhat as well because you've got some former NBA players who I think actually act reasonably well in there. You've got the former NBA player Kenny Smith, who's playing Leon, who's uh, Stanley's best friend, who, when it comes to a lot of the revelations later on in the movie, is going to be fairly key, that relationship between Leon and Stanley when they were in college. And I actually think he plays a fairly nice understated best friend like none of these guys with the exception of maybe a few lines here and there from those who are making cameos like uh, Charles Barkley's in this Shaq is in it Doc, Ro- Doc Rivers is in it and sometimes they're a little bit corny but the ones who actually have to use a bit of acting chops I think they actually delivered their lines pretty well. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I thought the basketball looked great and it has to be said and it's not it's not my sport. Listen, finally then Adam Sandler himself I thought you know the world weary talent scout he did that really really well like like hats off to him I think this is a, a career high in tandem with Punch Drug Glove and Uncle I'd Jazz. agree with you I think as I said to you on uh, WhatsApp after we had both watched the movie midweek that I thought it was a really reined in understated performance by Adam Sandler and he shines as a result Yeah, because sometimes when you watch Adam Sandler movies it's sometimes it's a vehicle for Adam Sandler yeah. and like we've sat through some of the horrific <laughs> horrific movies that he has made over the years I'm thinking of Grown Ups and Grown Ups 2 and I'm not sure if there was a Grown Ups 4, 5 and 6 uh, but those kind of over the top uh, comedic turns uh, look I enjoyed Happy Gilmore I would put my hands up I probably enjoyed Billy Madison and Big Daddy and a few of those movies when I was younger but when you look mm-hmm. back at them they are Adam Sandler dialed up to 510 yeah. in this one he is deliberately quite restrained in his own yeah. acting and, and he shows that if the material is right Adam Sandler can be a really really good actor and that is what we see here. And it actually is massively to the benefit of the movie that he plays it as understated as he does. The one actor I wish we had seen a little bit more of, John, was Ben Foster, who's mm. playing Vin Merrick, who is the son of Robert Duvall, yeah. who's playing Rex Merrick, the owner of the 76ers within the movie. And, you know, Vin is that guy who is uh, getting ready to take over the empire and isn't exactly making life too easy for yeah, Stanley. A, a little underwritten, maybe. A little bit, because I, I actually thought he was excellent in all the scenes that he was in. Yeah. And I was just thinking two-hour movie I would like to have seen maybe 15 or 20 minutes more of him yeah well listen in closing then firstly our regular critic Mark Ryle will get jealous if you say you were texting me about movies during the week because he's the one who texts me so you know we, we can't have that will but finally I always ask Mark to give us stars out of five so I'm not sure if I mentioned I'd be doing this to you but you're a pro will what would you give this out of five I'm willing to give this a four and highly recommend it and take the blame from any of your good listeners who are going to complain and say, he's just sent me to a a popcorn sports movie. I think it's a little bit better than that. And I think people are going to be talking very positively again about Adam Sandler. As you mentioned, this is definitely his best role in three, four years. And it just goes to show you give him good material where he can actually play a dramatic role well. Adam Sandler can be a good vehicle for your movie. Here, here. Well, I will give it four stars as well because I'm in utter agreement with you. Will, thank you very much for taking the time. No problem at all. Anytime. Do you love this game? I mean, love it with your whole heart. Because if you don't, let's not even bother. Let's not open that door. They're just going to slam it right in our face. I love this game. I live this game. There's a thousand other guys waiting in the wings who are obsessed with this game. Obsession's gonna be talent every time. You got all the talent in the world, but are you obsessed? Is it all you ever think about? Let's face it, it's you against you out there. When you walk on that court, you have to think I am the best guy out there. I don't care if LeBron's playing. 
So let me ask you again. Do you love this game? Yes. Is there a newborn kitten purring in here right now? I couldn't hear you. Do you want to be in the NBA? Yes! A clip there from Hustle, which is now on Netflix and uh, a surprisingly good Adam Sandler movie. So I guess, you know, if you have three of those in a row or whatever, you're going to have to stop saying surprisingly good. They're, they're just good. It's not surprising anymore. Time will tell. And my thanks to Will O'Callaghan of Off the Ball. Up next, a troubling but intriguing new movie called Leave No Traces. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now also opening this weekend and a million miles away from Jurassic World Dominion is a new Polish movie called Leave No Traces. It's based on a true story on actual events. The notorious beating to death in 1983 of an 18-year-old student, Gregor Permensk, in a Warsaw police station. A crime that was covered up at the highest level of government. His friend Jurek is the only proper witness to the crime and he becomes the subject of a sustained state attack and cover-up when it becomes apparent that he's actually going to testify. The title, Leave No Traces, which I think actually translates better as Leave No Marks, is in reference to a police chief saying that that's how they should beat this poor boy, beat him on the stomach because it will leave no marks. It's a shocking movie but it's a gripping watch. And it was Poland's submission for the best international feature for this year's Oscar. It was directed by Jan Manchenski. I hope I'm not butchering his name too much, and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Jan, how are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me here. No problem. So listen, from, from what I understand, this was 1983. You weren't even born then. So, so the obvious question is, why did a, a young filmmaker like you want to go back to this case? Is it Does it loom large in Polish consciousness? Well, I think it's mainly because the story, although it's almost 40 years old, it sounds so familiar, like it just happened, you know, somewhere around the corner. Mm. That was this this thing um you know it's kind of based on a reportage book which uh, covered uh, all all the story it was published a couple of years ago and when i read it i thought that this story is tragic it's terrifying it's shocking and it's so on time i mean it's so uh, contemporary in a way because uh, those kind of things happen are, are happening all, all, all over the world all over the time unfortunately it's not this one case you know, yeah. that happened in Warsaw in Poland in 83. You can, you know, name a lot, starting from George Floyd, for example, but there's there's a bunch of them, really. I, I counted, I think, 12 or, or 13 similar cases which happened during the production of the film. And there, I think th- those were the, the, the well-known ones, you know. Sure, sure. And as you say, all over the world, and I suppose to, to Irish audiences we think a lot about George Floyd as well and so these two young gentlemen Gregor and his friend Jurek uh, Gregor was the son of a well-known kind of poet and political figure who was involved in the solidarity movement so had that made him a target for police well that was the first thought after it, it all happened but quite fast in the story which you can see in the film it, it turns out that, no, it was actually a, co- a kind of a coincidence, like in, I don't know, Fargo by, you know, Cohen Brothers or yeah. something like this. And this is 
the, the, that was one of the triggers for me to, to actually focus on the story because it's not really what it seems at first glance. Yeah, it, it certainly isn't. And, you know, it becomes what, what I found very interesting about it. It became a bit like, and it seems almost to do it a disservice to describe it this way, but it, it became, you know, halfway through the film, like a spy thriller, like a Jean Le Carre movie where they're trying to basically discredit this witness, Yurik, and it, it's going to the higher echelons of, you know, Polish authority and there's guys smoking and dusty old offices and stuff. Was that your intention that you wanted to make this a gripping drama as much as reporting the case? Yeah, on, on one level, I would say that I wanted to play with uh, spy films in, in general. I thought a lot about, you know, the, the new wave of Hollywood from, from the 70s. Um, I, I can, you know, name, uh, I don't know, The Conversation by Coppola, for example. Sure, or, yeah. you know, all, all the President's Men and that, that kind of films that uh, they all have this feeling of... Uh, you know, insecurity that someone is, you know, looking uh, for you, searching, you, you don't really feel safe. And this is, this is one of the things that I found in this story. And I couldn't actually relate to any Polish film with this. Right. And as I'm a big fan of, of, you know, American cinema of the 70s, that was my natural direction. Okay, okay, that that's fascinating. I I can see the parallels between things like the conversation. Now that you say it, and all, and talking of that, you know, Poland in the eighties. Now I'm I'm a little older than you, not that much older, but we grew up knowing very little about it. That it was just part of this very strange thing called the Iron Curtain, and we we just thought everyone ate bad beige food and were controlled by, you know, this autocratic government. And and the way you film it in kind of 16 mil, it does look very grey and dour. I mean, was that your sense of how Poland was in the 80s? In a way, yeah. You know, I I, I really thought that uh, the backbone of this film should be mainly oppression and Mm. fear in so many different ways. So that's one side of it, and that that's why it might you know feel so gray. Yeah. But yeah. on the other hand, we uh, when we were looking for some visual inspirations, we started to think about Chris Niedertal's uh, photographies. He's uh, he's actually British, I think, uh, and, but but he he stays in Poland from I think late seventies, and he did a lot of great photos uh, with you know Valencia, all the solidarity movements, and. Not actually, not only in Poland, also in Bulgaria, for example, Hungary, and uh, they are all really colorful. And this is when when we took uh, we we took the tone of it. Mm-hmm. But after all, it really sounds uh, and, and looks quite uh, dark in a way. Although there's plenty of colors in the film, actually. Yeah, no, no, there is. That has to be said. And I, I shouldn't suggest that way, but you, you capture the mood of a dark time uh, very well. Now, I, you know, people can figure out what happened with the case if they just, you know, it's a Google away, but I don't want to, you know, give it a, a spoiler. People sh- should watch a movie, which I should say opens this weekend in Irish cinemas. But in terms of, you know, the actual case and how they try and discredit Jurek and all that they do, and then they blame these ambulance guys who who, who picked him up, like it's it's farcical the level 
that they go to. In terms of all that they did, was most of that accurate in terms of trying to discredit him, make him fall out with his parents, suggest things went on with his friends' mothers, blame the ambulance drivers, all these crazy kind of things. Was that accurate? Well, you know, the thing is that it was, what, it was all quite easy until it became uh, very political. Mm. And, and I think that's the problem with most of that kind of cases, really. Mm. Because if you can solve it, you, you just solve it, right? But when, when you have all those consequences, I mean, political consequences in, in this particular case, it's much more sophisticated than just, you know, pointing that, oh, this, this guy, this policeman did that, and that's it. I think that's, that's because that, that's why all the cover-ups really, you know, happen. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I, I think I wanted to uh, question this in a way, and, and I really think that you know making films uh, is, is mainly about bringing up some some questions and and think about uh, them, not really giving any answers actually, sure. because that's what I really like in cinema, and I wanted to to have it in this film is to you know to have. To, to, to leave some freedom uh, of choice and to really respect the freedom of the viewers to think whatever they want. Sure, sure. So. I think that's, that's the spine of, of this story, really, um, because what Grzegorz Przemek is doing on the main square, he's not showing his ID because he knows that he doesn't have to because the, yeah. the, the martial law was suspended at that time, so it was not you know, a necessity. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of things actually in this film, and uh, with every single interview, I find out you know new uh, flavors, new levels of it, and it's great because it's almost you know a year until uh, since we finished the film, so it's still okay. great. We can talk about it. And, and you're not tired of talking about it, as I can hear, which is impressive because I talk to a lot of people who have been promoting stuff for a long time, but you still sound passionate about this project, and so you should. The, the themes of Leaving No Traces are really relevant to, to what is happening right now. And if you're talking about Poland, we're, we're not that far from it, actually, mm -hmm. um, on many levels. Not only, you know, we're just taking Ukrainian citizens and help, helping them. There's much more than that. I would really love the situation when, you know, people are watching the films like this or like, I don't know, Kovadis Aida, for example. Uh, they would actually learn from these films and make this world a better place. Yeah. Um, when, when I started to work on Leave No Traces, I thought that this is, this is going to be like a historical epic kind of a warning that something that happened like this, you know, some time ago, and we don't want to go back to this. And I think it's, it, it all went, you know, the other way. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, look, that's a grim truth, uh, but your movie captures it wonderfully. Leave No Traces is in Irish cinemas from this Friday, the 10th of June, and it is a fine piece of work. Jan, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you, and please enjoy the film. That was director Jan P. Maciusenski talking to me about his movie Leave No Traces, which was the Polish entry for this year's Oscars. And as I say, it is in cinemas from this Friday, the 10th of June. Up next, novelist Adele Coffey on her favourite movie. 
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone about their favourite movie. Adele Coffey is a well-known broadcaster and journalist and lately hot cake-selling novelist, it has to be said, with her novel Breaking Point, which I keep reading about. I've yet to read, but people who have tell me it's absolutely wonderful. More of that anon. She's here to chat about her favourite movie and it is a doozy and I'm delighted she's joining me now. Hello, Adele. How are you? Hi, John. How are you? Thank you for having me. My absolute pleasure. Now, listen, your favourite movie, I just think it's an inspired choice. Will you tell our listeners what it is and why? Well, I'm always sort of like semi-embarrassed to say that this is my favourite movie because like, I love loads of art house movies as well. And I just feel like I should be choosing something that's way more, you know, highbrow. But my all-time favourite movie, I think, has to be Moonstruck. It's the 1987 film starring Cher and Nicolas Cage. And it's one of the most beautiful and, um, importantly, funny romantic comedies I've ever seen in my whole life. I've watched it so many times now. I like it, It's definitely into the sort of scores um, in terms of how many times I've watched it. I, I think I know most of the lines off by heart. And it's still... A really beautiful watch, a really funny watch. It never gets old. It never gets sort of tired. Um, and I suppose you just say a little bit about the story. The story well, is. I was, very- I was just going to ask, remind people what it's about. My memory is that it's very Italian American. Yeah, so it's written by John Patrick Shanley. Don't let that put you off, okay? Because I know (laughs) he's recently been in the news for um, Wild Mountain Time, which is that I'd never saw it, but, you know, people seem to object a lot. It seemed to be kind of... It was objectionable, so yeah. Yeah, and objectifying of the Darby Gill style of Irishness. But anyway, so I'm kind of fearful. I wonder, is, is this the same thing in the... Uh, Italian-American world, do they look at Moonstruck and go, oh, it's so cheesy. But anyway, for an Irish person living in Ireland and watching it, it's absolutely beautiful. So Cher plays this... um, you know, this sort of ground down bookkeeper and she's, her name's Loretta. She's a widow. Uh, She had bad luck. She thinks her husband, her first husband died because they didn't do things right. They got married down a city hall instead of in a church in a big dress and all that stuff. And so this this real superstition comes into it already. And she lives with her parents in this beautiful big brownstone in Brooklyn. Her mother is Olympia Dukakis and Mm. plays a, actually won an Oscar as well as Cher and John Patrick Shanley. They all won Oscars for this film, which will give you an an idea of how, uh, of the quality of the film. Anyway, they all live together. Cher's uh, engaged to be married to this man that she doesn't love, but she likes, and he's a decent man. And she, you know, her mother tells her that's the right thing to do because, you know, it's it's awful when you love them, you know, they'll break your heart. So there's lots of humor in it. Anyway, the husband-to-be goes home to Sicily to visit his dying mother. And he tells Cher to go and ask his um, his estranged brother, Nicolas Cage, to come to their wedding because he wants him at the wedding. He hasn't spoken to him in five years. We later learn that Nicolas Cage has a wooden hand and he blames the brother for losing his hand. He works in a bakery. Anyway, Cher and Nicolas Cage, like Nicolas Cage is this like big, passionate, fiery cliche of uh, Italian yes. passion. <laughs> and uh, Cher meets this kind of, passion and romance with a kind of like sensible I'm going to cook you a steak and they sit down and they have a chat and then like within minutes they're um they're having this most uh like just sweep you off your feet kind of romance this mm. she's engaged with brother and yet they end up in bed and the next morning she wakes up and she says you know this never happened this is never happening again and he tells her but I love you and she smacks him across the face and says snap out of it <laughs> and it's just wonderful and the whole time what this sort of like 
argument between passion and love and mm. then being sensible and going what, with what you should do is going on. There's also a second story, which is um, Cher's parents, Olympia Dukakis and her husband. He's, um, you know, an older guy. They're obviously the next generation. Uh, he's having an affair. Um, but Olympia Dukakis absolutely adores him. And, you know, she's all about their marriage. And she's trying to figure out, you know, the reasons why as she puts it, why do men chase women? And the answer is they're afraid of death or that's the answer, the conclusion mm. that she comes to. So like there's this brilliant sort of like deep um, focus on on the meaning of love and on relationships in all their different iterations and all their different phases and stages. And, you know, there's lots of um, really comical moments that come in and out and they're just set pieces. They don't, like John Mahoney, who played Fraser's dad, yes. he's in it. And he's just there to kind of uh, be an example of a different kind of love, which is an older man um, dating younger women, much younger women. Mm. And and they examine that a little bit and he comes across as actually quite lonely in the end. So there's all these really thoughtful um, examinations of different kinds of love, which gives it real heft. And yeah. like in the meantime, there's all this like slapstick comedy, like really brilliant physical comedy that you don't really see in movies anymore. Like the kind of comedy you used to see in early Woody Allen films, you know, they're really laugh out loud physical stuff, which I love as well. Yeah. And tell me this, I was going to say little bird told me, but you intimated to me when we were talking about this before. And did you watch this while you couldn't see? Yes, I did. Um, and like, I just love it so much. I, I go to this movie when I am, you know, I would have watched this movie in 2010 when, you know, the Troika came to town. Mm. It's that kind of movie for me. It's just like, this is the movie that will lift my spirits up and give me a little bit of escapism um, when things are going wrong. So yeah, there was actually a moment when I, this is a funny time in my life as well. I decided I was going to get laser surgery on my eyes because I just had this breakup and it was quite a serious breakup. And I was like 30 and I was like, I can't be wearing glasses anymore. This is ridiculous. You know, uh, um, so I went off and got laser surgery and um came home to bed and there was a power cut while I was like blind, essentially waiting for the eyes to recover. And I was on my own and I was just thinking like, you know, this is, this is what you get for, you know, waking <laughs> up with your boyfriend. Now you need somebody to change a light bulb or ring the ESV or, um, you know, put you to bed and give you a sulfidine. And now you have to do all that yourself. So what I did was I just stuck it on the laptop, which was fully charged, thankfully. And I lay in bed with big patches on my eyes and I just lay there listening to it because I knew every visual scene in my head so yeah. I could actually enjoy it just as much. Um, so it is, it's just one of those films. And if, I mean, if people have never seen this, you know, if somebody came to me and said, oh, there's this brilliant movie, Cher is in it and Nicolas Cage is in it and it was written by that guy who wrote Wild Men in Time, I'd be saying, are you out of your mind? <laughs> are you absolutely on drugs? This is not the film that I'm going to watch next. But can I just say to you, this is one of the best films you will ever watch. It's so uplifting. It's got a 94% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, if that means anything to you. I know a lot of people will understand that that actually is quite a difficult achievement. Mm. Um, so, so it is absolutely, you know, outstandingly excellent. It manages to be really smart, really funny, really emotionally moving. Um, and all those things at once, which is just a gorgeous mix. It's like that thing, you know, the the uh, dopamine hit that you get mm. from salt, sugar and fat 
in in fast food. I think it does the same thing to my brain when I watch Moonstruck. It's just like hitting all the receptors and it just gives me the best feeling in the world. I love it. Well, I think you have definitively sold Moonstruck. Watch it when the Troika comes to town and watch it when you can't see. It's quite literally a light yeah, in the dark. <laughs> Well, that it's is gorgeous. That is beautifully described. You know, it's funny today. I could have sworn Matt Dillon was the opposite lead in it. Like I would have taken a lie detector test. It's funny what memory does to you. You know, I must Absolutely. be. Getting, it was. I was sure it was Matt Dillon, but anyway, it's clearly Nicholas Cage, and he's in great form in this because uh, he's he he's not always. You know, he can be hit and miss, as we all well know. No, this but is really early in his yeah. career as well. Like he he hasn't got his teeth done or anything yet. Yes. He's just, just like, but he's gorgeous in it. Like he's just really twinkly eyed and really young, and the jet black hair. He just looks. He looks fabulous. Like yeah. and Cher, I don't think I've ever seen ever seen her look more beautiful. And I think she's 40 in that film and she's playing a 37 year old, um, you know, and it's, she's supposed to be over the hill at that point as well. But she, they're just they're, they're both beautiful. They're beautiful yeah. together. The chemistry is amazing. And also, we must not forget to mention that the backdrop, the musical backdrop and the sort of. You know, the the third storyline is La Boheme, Puccini's La Boheme. They go to the opera together and it's just, it's so unbelievably romantic, John. Yeah. Well, look, if you don't stop talking about this, I'm not going to be able to plug your book. So you better better wrap it up there now. But that is brilliantly described. Moonstruck, you should watch it. Uh, If not, taking my advice, clearly taking Adele Coffey's advice. Now, listen, the book Breaking Point, it has gone gangbusters. And for people who don't know that the genesis, the nut of the story is about a woman who leaves her kid in the car by accident because she's mm. rushing around so much. And, and you, know, you know, we don't have to go through the whole story of how it was out to auction. There seemed to be people bidding on it from all over the place. It was clearly long sought after, long before it was even published. But why do you think... Now, one answer could be it's just a great book, but you've clearly <laughs> tapped into something. Is that the sense you're getting of it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I've been completely, obviously shocked by the response, but also absolutely delighted by the response. And I really do believe that the reason it has um, gone so well is that people recognize themselves in it. And I think that's what uh, happens with books and movies and any kind of art that we love or like or sort of resonates with us is is that we recognize ourselves in it. And I was really writing about a time um, in my life where I was very hectic. I had four kids under six and I just every day I woke up and I felt like I deserved a medal for like literally just getting to 9am. Mm. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And I wanted to sort of examine our society and the world that we were living in that sort of put us under that pressure that Mm -hmm. said, yeah, this is how you've got to live now, you know. So I I was really, um, I really wanted to examine that. But obviously I wanted to do that all in a kind of page turnery way. So hopefully I achieved that. And that's what everyone's saying about it, that it is is utterly a page turner, which is wonderful. And just finally on that, and most writers, I always ask this question to, but it's kind of a public service thing. You know, you were in the media for a long time. I I saw you described as an arts veteran. You'll be shocked or pleased to hear. I'm not sure. You're young to be a veteran. I was going to say, I was going to say, (laughs) but like, is there a tip you have for the person out there listening who's thinking about maybe writing a book? Because lots of people are. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, just do it sounds like a really unhelpful piece of advice, but it is it is the only piece of advice I have because you know what? Um, I was waiting for a long time for mm-hmm. perfection. I, I was very hypercritical of my own work. And like, you know, everything 
I realized that I was being like lapped and outpaced by, you know, my peers, by people who are younger than me, by people who are 10 years younger than me. And I was thinking, you know, if you don't start now, Adele, you're never going to do it. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to actually have to um, get rid of the fear, get rid of that sort of feeling of inadequacy, which I still have, by the way. Um, But, you know, it's that thing of like, if you have something rubbish to work on you have something to work on if you are afraid to start because you feel like it will never be good enough you'll never do it so just yeah. Yeah, just do it and and don't worry about it being perfect because that's what editors are for that's for what agents are for that's what publishers are for you know they will help you get it to the point you need it to be but if you want to do it you have to you have to start indeed you do indeed you do well her favorite movie is moonstruck her Big selling book, if that's not some kind of uh, oxymoron, is Breaking Point. It is going gangbusters and will continue to do so. I was honest, I haven't read it, but it is on my significant to-do list, Adele, so I oh, will read it. You, it is an absolute pleasure to hear you talk books and movies. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I can't do that. Why not? I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I can't. All right, well, then I must never see you again, and the bad blood will just have to stay there between you and Johnny forever. And you won't come to the wedding. Won't come to the wedding. I am telling you, you can't come. He wants me to come. That's because he don't know, okay? Now, wait a minute, honey. Listen, all right. I won't come to the wedding provided one thing. What? That you come with me tonight to the opera. What are you talking about? I love two things. I love you, and, and I love the opera. Now, if I can have the two things that I love together for one night, I would be satisfied to give up, oh, Christ, to give up the rest of my life. All right, all right. All right. All right! Meet me at the mat. All right, all right. Where's the mat? A clip from Moonstruck, as chosen by the delightful Adele Coffey. It was great to chat to Adele, and she really sold that movie. She really did. I think you'll agree. And I, that, it's true what I said to her. I would have put my house on the lead character opposite Cher being Matt Dillon. Like, I was, I was convinced of it. Uh, even though I know the movie, it, it's memory is the funniest thing. It really is. Like I would have taken, as I said, an affidavit to that effect. And there you go. I'm losing my mind or something like that. That is it for this week. Next week on the show, Emma Thompson. Yeah, Emma Thompson in her new movie, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. And her co-star, the Irish co-star, uh, Daryl McCormack. So I'm looking forward to that, as you should too. That is it for this week. We will do it all again next week. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, feel free to email me. You can email us, screentime at newstalk.com or my Twitter handle is John underscore Fardy. We will back to our regular time of 6 p.m. next week on the radio. Of course, the podcast is available every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and take care.